from Studio H3 in the Current Affairs World Headquarters. It's Current Affairs, your ears' finest hour of politics and culture tonight on the program. It's a voicemail bag episode, and your panel tonight is Current Affairs Business Manager Allegra Silcox. Hello. Current Affairs Contributing Editor Eli Massey. Yo. Current Affairs Legal Editor Oren Nimney. Hello, everyone. And the Editor-in-Chief himself, Nathan J. Robinson. Hello. I'm your host, Pete Davis. We begin with segment one, voicemail bag. On the recurring segment, voicemail bag, we open up the phone lines to listen to voicemails and respond. Let's begin with voicemail one. Oh my God, that voicemail was adorable. Okay, so question. Joe Biden's blatant strategy has been to kind of Steve the Waluigi to the strategy of AOC in the initial strategy in her campaign of non-lazy, actually door-to-door activism to actually win over constituents, you know? He also has consistently told the left that he has no interest whatsoever in anything we care about. Considering that Biden only has a chance of winning because somehow Trump is so worse than the lowest possible bar. Where do you think the left should go in a Biden presidency? Thank you so much. I love you guys, by the way. You rock. What a nice ending. Um, As you can tell, that voicemail was either recorded before the election or recorded by someone who thinks that what's going to happen in the coming days means the election is not over yet, though I believe the timestamp shows it was recorded in October. The question was, what Waluigi was mentioned, but I believe the core of the question. What was the, I couldn't. What was that? He said he's the Waluigi to AOC, but I've I never heard that word before. <laughs> no, it, it, there's kind of an internet thing about Waluigi because it, the, the phrase Waluigi. What is that? I don't know what that. I have no idea what that is. I think I think as the designated nerd of the episode, it's my job to explain. So you know, in in Super Mario Brothers, the little video game. Mario yeah. and Luigi are brothers. Yeah. Uh, but Luigi's arch rival is Waluigi. And that's basically all you need to know. It's just know, a it's Luigi. Mario's wait, arch rival first was Wario. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, okay. All right. I, I'm, again, but, 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 but so it, it, does the word Waluigi in this context <laughs> simply mean nemesis? Or is there a particular but reason? What's interesting about Waluigi is Waluigi is a double transformation from Mario because it's Mario to Luigi and then Luigi to Waluigi. Right. So, Wait, so, so, so who is double... you to say Waluigi instead of say Wario? Or... I don't really want to Wait, parse but, the voicemail. No, but we who, have to parse the but voicemail who, to but answer the question. There, there is a question here, which is who is AOC in this? If Biden is the Waluigi, is AOC Luigi or is AOC Mario? Or Wario. He's also he's one transform oh. away from two of those and two transforms away from one of those. The only important thing to know, Nathan, is that he's just a really big meme. He's just a very beloved character of the franchise. Your your see, okay, Nathan, your Waluigi is Brian David Gilbert, the polygon editor who looks like you and that you're very upset about. I, I and he did an entire episode about Waluigi. Well, no God, wonder. I don't know. Yeah. I guess it'd be you weird actually, to call Nathan the Luigi of the staff. Waluigi's colors are purple. are purple. So they kind of... So, Nathan. 
you are the yeah i don't know the the point is <laughs> the point is uh, i guess the question is what do we do during a biden presidency thoughts panel <laughs> as in what do we literally do during the next four years well, i'm just looking at pictures of waluigi <laughs> I mean, I, so, so I'll start. The thing that we do, I, I don't think is actually that different than the thing that the left does under any presidency, which is the the job of the left is to build power not outside of the electoral system for people to actually create a society that they want to see. Now, the fact of having a slightly more liberal administration does mean that there's some possibilities to make the world a little bit more bearable while we're doing that power building. But I do think that the fundamental job of the left is is still going to be to organize outside of the system. Because this voicemail was recorded before the election, let me preview for you that there's going to be a lot of fights over what the elect- elected people on the left should do <laughs> in the future. I, 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 in the future, I'm going to tell you that people are going to going to fight over what <laughs> the role speak retroactively to a person at the point that they recorded it. There will be fights. There will be fights over what the role of left politicians should be in relation to the Biden administration, in relation to the Pelosi speakership, in relation to policy demands, and all of those are potentially fights that will happen, whether online or in person. But at the end of the day, those are all just sort of minor electoral fights that have nothing to do with the larger political struggle that people are, are building um, in their communities. And so th- that's generally the job of the left. I mean, I think there there is a question about what minor left gains can be won from a Biden administration um, on things like the environment and things like immigration, where federal action is both necessary and extremely important. And I think, you know, the, therefore the job of the people that can can push the levers of those levers of power, the job is to to get good things out of out of those systems and hopefully stall the environmental catastrophe that we're about to have. But also, and I don't think that the listener or the caller was implying this, but like it's not going to be a everything's fine situation. But it it never is that way when even when there's a democratic president in power. So it'd be nice if we didn't even have a little gap period where we thought it was going to be that way and then changed can i share a schema that i think fits that spirit love a schema and i think it's it's kind of just saying what oren said but as a schema we often think that you know the, the media wants us to think that the president is the agent of politics and like we're supposed to become like psychologically like obsessed with them either they're the bad you know they're the bad hero or they're the good hero and they're the agent of politics and we just are the spectators watching the agent of politics which is the president it used to be like all politicians but it's gotten smaller and smaller and now it's just the president we all just politics is watching the president but the way i think we should think about it is that the agent is actually us and the president is part of the map of the game Okay, and there are maps that are slightly better than other maps. That's why you have elections, because elections will be voting on which map you want the agents to fight on. And I would argue it's a slightly better map than it will have been four years ago with more entryways and like passageways through the mountains or whatever. But the map doesn't get anything to the finish line. The map is just the map and we are the agents. So I would just say keep pushing ahead and use the new opportunities of the new map um, where you can 
and don't believe that the map itself will result in what you want. You must still, I wonder, I, I need to extend the metaphor, you must still move your wagon train forward through, <laughs> through the map <laughs> as it is or whatever. Others, others on the panel, uh, thoughts on what we should do? I mean, I think democratic administrations are opportunities for the left in that, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated bag. As, as Oren suggests, um, you know, there are opportunities for victory, you know, for, for gains that might not be possible under a Republican administration. But also, I think that there are times where Democratic administrations are capable of achieving exceedingly right-wing, you know, authoritarian evilness that uh, Republican administrations would be fought tooth and nail on. So I'm, I'm reminded of, you know, Bill Clinton, quote-unquote, ending welfare as we know it. Or I'm reminded of the Obama administration deporting more people on a year-by-year basis, as well as in total basis, than the Trump administration. So we have to be very much on guard for that. I'll come in with the woman's perspective. Uh, (laughs) So speaking for all women, I think that we should really use this as a time to examine our feelings. And I really, honestly, I swear I do have something to say about feelings, and I just ruined it by making it about the woman's perspective. But separate from discussions of mutual aid or electoral process, what I think is going to be a really big challenge and has been for me and all of the other leftists I know is processing how we react to this. So some of this is an annoying Twitter sphere, which we probably shouldn't even care about. But even in real life, it's very difficult to know if we should supposedly feel grateful or feel angry. I just think it's a good time to step back and examine the feelings of rage that we have and where they come from. Because I think there's very productive versions of that that Current Affairs has written about before. Sort of this righteous anger really helps us know where to focus our energy, what's actually going wrong in the world. We should be mad about kids in cages. Uh, But we should maybe take a step back and figure out, should we be so mad about some things on Twitter? And I just think that now that we have quote unquote sort of won, we've lost less (laughs) in this election. It's a good time for us to think about what we were going to choose to get mad about, because it's going to be extremely easy to turn on our comrades as we disagree about the strategy going forward. Mm-hmm. The other point, sorry, I, I remember the, the second point I wanted to make about why I think democratic administrations are and should be real moments for of opportunity for the left for building is I think um, they can show the limits of the democratic party or this particular democratic administration. And, um, that's exceedingly useful in making the case for why we need a left, a, a progressive alternative, you know, or something outside of the Democratic Party or, you know, to, to pull the Democratic Party to the left. And of course, you hear this since the election, we've been hearing this kind of hackneyed and, you know, somewhat unpersuasive line about how we need to hold Biden accountable and pull him to the left. That's sort of all we can do at this moment. But I, I think it, it's, it's a real opportunity and moment for building. And I think we have to conceptualize the, the next four years as planning and yeah, an opportunity for, for, for growth. I want to bring in one additional point, which is, uh, I think there are, you know, we've sort of talked about some policy opportunities, but I also think that there are structural opportunities. And what I mean by that is, you know, change on immigration and change on the environment would be fantastic. But 
one thing that seems to tend to happen under democratic administrations is a, a deference to the power structure as it exists, because you think some things might be able to actually get through that way. And what I think the better move for the left under a democratic administration, which one that people tried to take, for example, under Obama, if you look at Black Lives Matter or Occupy, is um, an increase in our democracy or an increase in our democratic inputs. And sometimes those are policy changes. Like if you think about things like, um, you know, stripping the Supreme Court of jurisdiction, which might of over many things, which might be a democracy emboldening thing. But I, I think one thing that we should think about beyond particular policy measures is really ways that we can use the interstitial period of a democratic administration to increase the the vehicles for popular will to kind of take effect. And so that we can continue to have a more democratically controlled or more directly democratic form of, of government. Nathan, any thoughts? Yeah, I... <sighs> Do you have any thoughts on the Democratic Party and the left, <laughs> Nathan J. Robinson? <laughs> well, look, it's hard to it's hard to answer in part because it's hard to know because so much of what we have to do now is very experimental. Uh, it was really easy during the Bernie Sanders campaign because we all had a thing where we we're like, well, okay, uh, we have Bernie Sanders, a bunch of left candidates, we need to work on electing those people, and then you know during the election of Biden, we had this sort of Biden. Everything was reduced to Biden and Trump, and we had we really really needed to make sure that uh, Trump didn't get reelected and now we're faced with this this massive question of how does the left build power in the United States a country where the left historically has been out of power forever always and that's not something that is easy to answer which is why we're seeing the uh, huge fights go on right now uh, mostly uh, online but I'm sure in arguments that people have with each other every day in, in in real life about what do you do do you do you try and is you know is do you try and exert pressure on someone like AOC and see her kind of as as almost an adversary or do you see her as a as a comrade you see you know do you, what what is the power of symbolic votes this is the whole you know this this uh, this idea of trying to get a symbolic uh, vote on 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 Medicare for all in the house how powerful would that be would that move public opinion or would it be useless and 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 it would it not would it be a bad expenditure of our energy there's no obvious answer to those things because we don't no, we don't know what the effects of things are. We're all sort of guessing based on we can look at history. How much can you move a neoliberal administration? Well, we can look at Bill Clinton, Barack Obama and go, well, they didn't respond much to left pressure, but there also wasn't much left pressure. Then we can look at LBJ and FDR and we can think, well, we got Social Security, we got Medicare under those fundamentally ruling class presidents. Uh, maybe there are things we can do. Let's look at the Socialist Party in the early 1900s. Well, they managed to win all these local offices and pass some legislation, but then they kind of fizzled out. Look at Occupy Wall Street. We organized successfully under a Democratic administration and that kind of fizzled out. So we're trying to learn all these lessons and now synthesize them into the correct thing to do. And it's going to be really, really difficult. So I, I hesitate to advise people. <laughs> that seems like a good reason to maybe not make uh, any of these strategies that we're trying out, particularly minor electoral tactics, a, a litmus test for anything. Just if that was going to happen in the future. Speaking purely hypothetically. Purely hypothetically, if that was going to happen, maybe minor electoral tactics strategies could, shouldn't become a dividing line in, in, in the left in the very beginning of the Democratic administration. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> also, go on to predictit.com and 
buy yes in Buttigieg being transportation secretary. <laughs> you want to make a quick this is, return on your. This investment. is like some some uh, Marty McFly. What was it, Biff? Um, shit, where he goes to the future and then he gets the 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 sports predictions and then yes. he comes back. I like it, but I like the idea that like you have access to time travel, and the way that you're going to get rich is by going on the yeah, instead of like the stock market, or, yeah, Bitcoin, whatever. Let's go to the next one. Here we go. Hi, um, I've written a pre-prepared statement because I can't organize my thoughts in real time. So uh, here it is. I was listening to the segment about the college experience in episode 57 of the pod, and I have some thoughts. I'm a senior in college now doing it remotely, and I'm really struggling to drag myself to the finish, uh, and I have been since middle school, basically. Uh, I'm feeling a lot of anger, not just towards the institutions themselves, which you all talked about and rightly criticized, but also towards the general model of education that's employed in college and all the other levels. Because I think that even with the most compassionate teacher, what it amounts to is coercion and the normalization of hierarchy and emotional abuse through constant judgment based on output. Um, I think aside from making education free at all levels, at the very least, there should be no grading in a semester system, i.e. you complete work um, at your own pace. As for academic rigor, I don't think it can be forced, and certainly not with uh, the underlying threat of punishment. People inherently seek knowledge no matter what. Um, but I also think the sequestering of students from the workings of society in general is wrong and has left me feeling disconnected from any real community uh, when I want to contribute to things now without having constant assignments to worry about to prove my smartness. Um, I think the learning and working separation should be erased. Um, because even our youngest should play a role in making decisions, and this along with erasing the working-living dichotomy. I think that this model of education might still exist in a socialist society, and I would still hate it. Um, if I didn't believe this, I might turn my anger inward for being a lazy bum and slacking on an opportunity that many underprivileged people never get. So I don't know if I'm just being a big baby because I don't want to write my papers or... Um, uh, I wanted to know uh, what you guys think and how could things be structured practically on a grand scale to enmesh experiential teaching in all life's activities to free students from hierarchy and let them contribute, or how much should traditional models of education be preserved? Um, also, I really love the movie Pen to Send, and you guys should watch it if you haven't already, if you get the time. Um, also, you guys have gotten me through some really tough times personally, so thank you. Uh, yep, Bye. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for calling in. We're so touched that you listened to us. We're so touched that this has been helpful. We are so grateful for your question. What is the movie he wanted? I didn't, I didn't I still watch. The... I'll watch it. We'll watch the movie. <laughs> we'll look it up and get and get the name. I'm really tempted to do a sparky impression here because this is a very sparky question, as Eli says. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, what do you want? Of course it's all bullshit. Yeah, I mean, we, we know it's all bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> that was good that was very on point but, which is what sparky would say and which yes, is correct. the listener is correct about everything the, the listener is correct about everything one one thing that i just i did want to pick out is my so my brother is a middle school teacher in seattle um and is is sort of going through the travails of, of teaching online and one thing that i i found particularly interesting that he's he's been doing is basically no one gets it's not that no one gets a grade, but like you, one can do an ass, redo an assignment as many times as as one wants, 
and I think I, that's like a very minor change and doesn't address all of the problems that the that the caller was was focusing on around um, sort of hierarchy and coercion, which I think are, are deeply important that we need to reform not just sort of the financial and material structure of school, but also the emotional and social interaction of school. But there is the one reason I wanted to just bring up that that minor change is I think it gets at some of the question, which is what it, the goal of education actually is. And if we if we agree in some part that the goal of education is building up some kind of body of knowledge, but also fostering curiosity and fostering, you know, the ability to learn in the future, then, you know, some of the things that the, the caller presented and something that this sort of this policy that my brother is doing sort of does is it means that like, well, it doesn't really matter if you get things right the first time, because who cares about that? The, the real question is whether eventually you can work through a process of, of kind of honing your thoughts and honing your thinking and honing the way you do a thing until it's the thing that you actually want it to be in the end. Now, you whether sound like the being thing- dad. <laughs> 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 but of course you should be given the tools to do such a thing, Eli, and the knowledge to do so. She but was that, given, she was given she the can opener. Yeah, the can opener, but not the knowledge. But not the knowledge. She, but she, she, she had, had the time. Fuck the bean dad. The fuck time. the bean dad. No, okay. fuck the bean dad. Anyway, let, let me just say that you know the thing that you might want out of assignment might not be what the school wants you to get from it, and so I, I think that there's still going to be some divergence between the goals of the education system and, and your internal goals. But I do think that the the listener is correct in the sense that there are these particular evaluation metrics that seem to have no linkage to what we all kind of agree the goal of good education would be. And make you feel bad. Yeah, I'll add on to that. You could use the word gamification to describe um, what you're talking about, Oren. My my college roommate is now an educator, and she is lucky to be able to experiment with a lot of these things. And I was blown away by how weird the concept to me was of treating knowledge. She calls it, she frames it very much like a video game or RPG questing. She says, it doesn't really matter how many times you try to do the quest. It's just whether or not you actually achieve it at the end and that there's really no penalties. So I think that this is a, a growing school of thought in education. And I think that it would be incredibly valuable. But after having recently read uh, The Dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin and thinking about a an ambiguous utopia, as she called it, thinking about an anarchist utopian society, it is very difficult to to try and give any kind of credence to the current structure of education. It is a hierarchy and there's very little power that students have to make their own decisions about how they spend their time, what path they want to follow. So, well, gamification, it definitely seems like a big improvement over the test-based education system we have. I'm very skeptical of the entire thing. And we actually have a current affairs article called Education Gamification by Vincent Gabriel that we ran in 2019. We do. Yeah. We do. It's great. If, if I could get one idea kind of about education, kind of large, like accepted, I think it would be that, like, or, or like consensus on one thing. I think it would be that if, like, shedding the notion that it is normal or acceptable for school to be unpleasant and for students to hate it like that being a part of it that isn't a problem because we consider oh well you know knowledge is it's hard and it's it's i i think we have to i think it's so so important to rethink it to where if students are miserable 
that is a failure of the education system because knowledge is interesting and and learning is actually fun unless you really fuck it up. But Nathan, Be- let me let me let me ask you a question. Like, are there parts of the educational process? that are like eating your vegetables where it's important but it's going to be difficult you know there are things well i I think it's like i've actually found this with exercise recently because i finally actually gotten an exercise regimen that i like and it's it's changed we're gonna share nathan's protein stack on the show (laughs) there, there was this huge shift between it being actually miserable and actually painful and horrible, and I hated it, to there was there's still, like, kind of pain, but it's a good and satisfying... Like, you feel really, really good after a, a good, tough workout. I never believed that kind of thing existed, but I actually have found... I had to work with a guy who helped me figure out that it... That it and I think learning is... If you're actually depressed and you hate it, like, there's stuff that's tough... I feel like some current affairs articles are long, but like they should be satis- really satisfying at the end. You should feel really satisfied. You don't f- if you don't feel satisfied, if you're bored, something is going wrong, and it's the school's and the teacher's fault and not your fault. And that's something I, I like. I, I don't. There's a concrete a- level. Oh, you go, Warren. No, I was just gonna say like a Paul Goodman thing, which is that. Amen. I, I think that there's like there's two things here. One is. You know, whether there are some things that you just kind of need to learn and you should just suck it up and eat your vegetables and whether you should feel bad about them. And I think Nathan's right on the analysis at that point. The other thing is how hard people actually try to make those things interesting and make those things satisfying and how deeply you learn when something actually is satisfying. So Paul Goodman has this thing, not a policy recommendation from me. But just I'm using it as a framing gesture, which is that more literature, more children's literature or preteen literature should be pornographic. And Nathan knew I was going to say this. (laughs) Here's why he says that, which is like he's like, look, you can't just tell kids reading is a thing you're supposed to know. And therefore, it's good. And you, you should bang your head against the desk every day, learning how to read and learn how to read really well. Instead, what you should do is you should give children or who are just like horny little motherfuckers, books that they'll want to read, that they'll be desperate to read. And if you ch- you could take this out of the porno- pornography context. Yes, could we please like do that? Or uh, we do not endorse Orin's I said Paul Goodman's <laughs> statement. I said what about it wasn't Harry a policy. Books? I said it wasn't a policy <laughs> prescription for me. Although you know, I don't know. I I'm not an educator. I, what I will say is that like I think sometimes people who end up loving to read end up loving to read not because they loved to read you know whatever book was assigned to them in fourth grade but they end end up loving to read because they got really into comics and and their friends were reading comics and they wanted to know what happened to spider-man next week and the only reason the only way to know what happened to spider-man next week is to be able to read it and that having these things that actually attract you into learning make learning both easier and more satisfying but also make it so like that the eating your vegetables isn't even really like eating your vegetables that part of what makes a thing a vegetable is the way that it's presented not just the thing that it is and i think this is why more autonomy is is really important so getting back to his his point about hierarchy when someone else is deciding always what you learn and the way in which you do it i think that you there is no real solution to this problem because even if you had slightly better structures we weren't so test focused even if you had uh, better incentivized and trained teachers ultimately 
any like pedagogical plan is going to have some ideology baked into it. Like, how are we going to free our children from recess that's filled with competitive games? You know, we also ran a great article about socialist Sunday schools and just the fundamental things that they try to change and train out of children is rooted in such unconscious levels of, of ideology, which makes me think, you know, in, in what way is a state run education program ever going to be completely free from that ideology unless we give chance well i've heard i've heard a great proposal exactly on that question which is how do you free kids without just propagandizing to them and the answer is you train them in two different you uh it's unger's roberto unger's proposal for every class oh so i can't cite goodman but you can cite unger no no (laughs) my site is legal The book Growing Up Absurd is a great book, as well as many of the books, actually. Unger says every topic should be taught twice from differing perspectives to force the children to understand that all stories must be denaturalized. So, oh, so you're going to both sides the children. So, you both sides the children on every topic. So, you say. Yeah, so you do world no, well you do World War Two and you assign like the so normal what textbook. What you're advocating, Pete, is that we have to teach the children the Nazis' perspective. Yeah, no, no, I, I think he would say I think Oh he now would say, we scoff at child teach, pornography. But you <laughs> teach one you teach one historian's book on World War Two and then you have them read another book on World War Two by another historian. The children have to learn you, the, the Nazi uh, genocide denial. It, why, the Holocaust there are denial. a lot of takes on World War Two. There's the left <laughs> Who picks the two not. takes though? The two takes could be no, but then Democrat Republican. The no, then you teach no, but then you teach the kids. Oh, yeah. There are more always more than one take. There's no natural mm. or necessary take. I think that's fine. I, I just I like I so I think that most you know, from an anarchist perspective, much of learning should be autonomous and, and non hierarchical. I do think that there's a purpose to incentivizing the sort of things that make it easier to work in a collective society. And so like, but that does mean, and this is even, even sort of like a Pete point, like incentivizing the learning of like civic and collective engagement, I think is very good for working in a collective environment. Um, I don't know that a child would choose that by themselves. Like maybe there is one child in the corner that's obsessed with consensus process, but probably most aren't. Um, so I think it's worth doing some non-pornographic incentivization for for those types of things, um, while also leaving still the choices to pe- to to people to pursue what they'd like. Although I do feel like we're also getting very focused on early education and and, and not focused necessarily on the things that the listen that the, the caller was talking about, which was sort of like higher education, uh, where it sounds like they are. One thing on higher education, there are 5,000 universities. This was kind of a more abstract point about every institution. There are 5,000 universities, and they are very institutionally convergent. Like, they all have different mascots. Some are a little more rowdy than others. But they all, like, like I'd say over 90% of them have grades, have semesters, have, like, professor-student, have, you know, campus in a specific structure, dorms in a specific structure. And there's not a lot of institutional innovation. And we actually need the way you move a uh, system forward is you run a lot of institutional experiments by having a lot of institutional divergence, especially when you have a 5,000 different universities to try things out. And yet, 
you know, there's still like, oh, did you know Colorado College has the block system? But it's like it shouldn't be one college as the block system. It's like we need to have a lot more innovation in this so that we can start seeing like what works in different ways. Why and didn't so, capitalism breed that innovation? Well, I think the libertarian be careful with that because I think the libertarians <laughs> would say it's because universities like don't follow capitalist logic. But I think the answer is that, all that would bureaucracies. Be wrong, just to be yeah, clear, and that would be wrong. wrong. Yes, because <laughs> as you can see by many products where um, where uh, they all converge on some... Also, li- oh, universities are, are just corporations also. And even if they yes. have some particular market shields, many other businesses have particular market shields. And also, most theories of capitalism understand sort of the, the production of labor for the capital market as, as a function of capitalism, which is often what schools are. So I, anyway, sorry. I, yes. I don't like the libertarian point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but if you are a university dean listening out there try a year without grades try a year without semesters i'm sure that'll go over great <laughs> actually it does i went to a law school without grades more yeah. or less but but this is this is like the point is that there's market incentives in place where like you know we could talk about it but like good luck trying to explain to your employer oh like students from evergreen for example i hear have this issue when they go out into the labor market where they get like uh, review from their professors and it's difficult communicating to the outside world what you spent the last four years doing. You know, you want to be competitive in the market, you want to like land a job and that deters departing from the sort of standard operating pr- uh, procedure for the for the institutions, you know? This is a corruption of the institution. If their job is to teach and yet they feel they should rank all the students for the sake of future employers' data? It's crazy. Well, but you also, you know, I mean, <laughs> Barack Obama and others have talked about how, you know, like you're being prepared for the for the labor force, you know? And uh, the art history major is maybe not the, the best choice um, in that sense. I mean, I do think having labor, you know, control production would actually change the education system as well implicitly so if you're listening who called in build unionism and your college will get better and if you can knock that out before you graduate we'll just (laughs) or at least give a or at least you know give a little mario savio type speech i think it gets at the same thing i think i mean i think we didn't address uh, an element there which was about the isolation that's come since the pandemic teaching is that right was that in the question i don't have any advice for that i'm just so sorry Keep listening well, to I mean, things. I, I will say that, read, like, read a lot. Yeah, yeah. Go, yeah. Eli. No, no. I, I was gonna. Um, I had a dumb observation about um, how, like, the academy and academics are sort of monastic figures, and you know, I, yeah. I don't need to go into it. It's not all that relevant. Ooh, a monk crossover. That's classic current affairs. <laughs> monk drop. Nathan, finish us off. Sparky and I have written a couple of things about education for uh, current affairs. And um, one of the things that I've noticed a lot every time I read about it is is how very few people seem to have a a defined idea of what it's for uh, or what we're trying to do. You know, why do students, why do we send students to high school? What are we trying to do? We're not trying to prepare them for the practical 
life because we don't teach them practical skills. You're not actually learning things that you could use at your job even. You're not taught philosophy, so you're not taught how to think. So we're not teaching people how to how to how to think. Um and I think the most plausible answer is you're you're being put to a series of tests to check how well you can complete that it's a series of obedience tests. I had a really disturbing realization recently because I was I've been commissioned to do an introduction for a new edition of the Great Gatsby because the I wear it I think because I seem like an aristocrat from the 1920s so so they thought I'd be good for this so I had to reread the Great Gatsby which I haven't read since I was 17 and I hated it when I was 17 I didn't remember anything about it I was taught it in school like most I think it's it's a standard ninth grade English class book and uh, I found rereading it that I really enjoyed it and that I have really never read it before because in ninth grade, they're not teaching you, they're not trying to get you to appreciate The Great Gatsby. They're using The Great Gatsby to teach you, to help you do English exercises, like evaluate, you know, uh, can you notice the foreshadowing and the illusion and, and what's the symbolism of this and can we dissect, it's like a dissection exercise that kills your ability to appreciate this book. And I... I as I was reading, I was like, man, I could not have enjoyed this book in high school because uh, it was a means to the end of the various exercises that I hated doing in the papers that I hated writing. Um, and so until we have like a better sense of like why what we're trying to do when we assign students a, a, a book, what we're trying to, you know, what, what is all of this for? What is a college for? In whose interests does it run? Does it run in the interests of the trustees? Are we trying to, is it job training? Is it for the, is it uh, just giving students what they want in a marketplace? Um, uh, you know, in which case some universities have adopted a more market-based model where they've, like, replaced the history department with the video games department because, like, it's more popular. So do you do that? So I think the first thing is, like, thinking among everyone in education, there needs to be, like, much more deeper and harder questions about what the hell is all of this trying to do? Nathan, when is this Great Gatsby coming out? <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know. Uh, probably not for another year. It's a really, it's like an illustrated limited edition a collectible book. This is actually a great idea for a book club because it's it's you should read all the books we were assigned in high school and discover how much more enjoyable they Catcher actually are. Catcher in the Rye, Mockingbird. Yeah, yeah we just read them all. <laughs> and then we actually get to read I think it's a great idea, those. actually. Wuthering, Wuthering Heights is a great book. I hated it in high school. Though. But I, I hate reading the dialect in, in Wuthering Heights. But there's some there's some great quotes from Wuthering Heights. You know, have you have you heard of uh, Willa Cather and My Antonia? Have you heard of this book? Yeah, yes, I've heard. I of had her. to read it yes. in high school, and I am permanently the only thing that I remember about that book is that there was a character named uh, like Mister Fuchs, and it was spelled F U C H, and we all thought that was the funniest shit. But I'm I'm like permanently soured on Willa Cather. I, I probably would read her these days, and you know, like think that she's a decent writer, but she had these long pastoral descriptions. Um, and it was just, it was, it was painful. And you hated it. I hated it. Hated it. But Nathan, <laughs> yeah, Nathan, unlike you, I love the literary analysis. I love like picking apart literature and, and discussing what various characters symbolized and reading the text through a Marxist or a Freudian or feminist perspective. Like that was really fun to me. You Did know? you go to a cool school where you read books no, through no. a Marxist, Freudian, or feminist? Um, well, we did. I did have a professor who we we had to have some rudimentary kind of understanding of what the Freudian or feminist perspective 
interpret lens of interpretation was. But it was a public it was a public high school. Wow. Okay. Well, let's go to our final voicemail of the night. Here we go. Hello, Mister Affairs. Uh, first time, long time. Uh, after some recent Twitter drama, I kind of thought I would like to hear the panel expound on their thoughts of extraterrestrials. Where are they? Why aren't they here? Do they exist? Which one of you is most likely an extraterrestrial? And along those lines, uh, will we survive as a species long enough for any of that to really matter? Uh, thanks, everyone. Hope everyone had a good holiday season. Goodbye. Great voicemail to finish this off. The question is, what do we think of aliens? Who would like to uh, go first? I'll jump on the grenade. This is a very unfortunate question because there's a lot of science and math that I know goes into this that I simply do not know. But ever since I watched uh, Contact as a young child, I've been a big believer that if they're, if we're the only people out there, it's an awful waste of space. Uh, and as an adult, I understand a little bit about some theories of mathematics that kind of prove that anything that could possibly happen actually has happened infinite times in the universe. So it's just very difficult to imagine that there are no aliens anywhere out there. Uh, but whether we can contact them, something something about the amounts of energy required to travel such large distances, I don't, know, I don't really know. Is that like a quantum mechanics thing when you say that Everything that could happen has happened millions of times. Oh, no, you asked me a follow-up question. That's illegal. <laughs> That's illegal. I will direct you to my best friend. I'll give you his Twitter handle oh, and talk to you about this whole uh-huh. thing. Give it, to, give it to our listeners as well so they can pester him. with. with or yeah, he has yeah, smart yeah, thoughts. I talked to this guy. He's a physicist, and he knows shit. Um, he has a thing. Well, let's say John Heavysides. I think that's his handle. He's going to kill me. No, he's not. <laughs> he's going to love it. Yeah, at John Heavysides. It's an I, not a Y. Direct your questions about aliens <laughs> to ask John Heavysides. <laughs> so I, I was convinced this week that aliens exist. So you're catching me at a good time. The head of the Harvard Astronomy Department, Avi Loeb, has is coming out with a book where he basically just says aliens exist and they visited in 2017. <laughs> it's very precise. And basically he's an astronomer. He's following all the, the lights and the things, objects in the solar system. And there's this one object that appeared in 2017. Um, it was shinier than all the other objects. And it moved, it was shaped in a very weird way that doesn't seem like things are usually shaped, like usually things are spheres. It was not spheres, it was shaped like a cigar. Okay? And then third, it moved in ways that are completely unexplainable. And it was able to kind of go towards the sun and then, instead of being captured by the gravity, push away from it at a force that seemed to have, say, seemed to indicate that it has its own internal propulsion mechanism in it um and he believes that it is aliens well i was just saying pete you say you were convinced this week that aliens exist but i note that my tweets on the subject were several weeks ago so you're saying that i didn't succeed in persuading the harvard astronomy (laughs) and those those three reasons like yeah those three reasons don't seem all that persuasive to me because i i don't understand look I am sympathetic to the possibility that there are aliens, but I just don't understand why we witness things that we can't explain and jump to that conclusion when regular, I mean, we understand so little about the world. It it seems like a sort of strange thing 
Yeah, go ahead, Nathan. So, yeah, I, 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 so the thing is that it's hard for me to even evaluate arguments like the astronomer guy because I don't know about astronomical objects. I don't know about the, like, how weird a thing being shaped in a certain way is because I haven't studied how things tend to be shaped in space. And so it's very difficult to, as a layperson, evaluate an argument made by an expert of that kind. Okay, I, I will be peppering facts into this. Okay. The object uh, was 10 times longer than it was wide. No naturally occurring space body we've ever seen has looked like it or even close. Well, but we haven't seen... I mean, I don't know. My basic take... I, I So I said some... Twi- the, thing, the Twitter drama that the guy's referring to, I said some tweets going like, of course there are aliens. And, you know, it's... it's. Uh, I think I said it was neoliberalism not to believe in alien. Uh, I had a case for that. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> it's gone now. The, but but the, the thing is that it, it, it's just worth pointing out that if you don't believe that there are any extraterrestrials, you think that we are the you think that we are the highest form of life, the most developed form of life in the entire. Well, I think the argument is that when universe. life gets to a certain level. Um, it self-destructs. Well, this is what's usually said, and what then the important thing about that is that it is kind of uh i think conservative pessimism it's not science right it's 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 speculative long-term social history and it's extrapolating from like our own view of our social development into what we think is happening everywhere else around the universe at the same time my basic working theory is that there are a ton of aliens. They're very far away, so it's very difficult to know that there are aliens. We're basically in the situation that you'd be before the Earth was discovered, where there are lots of people on different continents, but they hadn't met each other, and that we are at a stage of development that probably all the other aliens are about, av- on average, uh, at, at the same place. And we developed a space program within the last hundred years, which is nothing in cosmic time. Why do you assume that we're all out roughly yeah, why don't Why at? don't you think Jupiter is a life form? <laughs> okay, well, that's no, a- but like, why do you assume they're just humanoids okay. that inhabit why planets? Why do you think that Jupiter is a life form? Well, like, why aren't mushrooms aliens? Why aren't, it, why isn't, like, the Milky Way itself a life well, form? Oh, we okay. don't know. Well, that... Okay, well, that gets Why do you, into, it's like when I asked, how do you know trees if we how sped do you know, things up? I know up. you have a theory that trees are exactly <laughs> like us, except over different time spans. Um, <laughs> but, what, but I guess, why do you assume that other life takes the form of beings that inhabit planets? I, so I don't, I don't, I don't take, so I have a slightly different theory, which is I don't have that assumption, nor do I have the assumption. I do think that it's arrogant to think that we're the only life. I don't think it's, necessarily arrogant it's it's arrogant to think that we're the most advanced life form although i don't wouldn't think that i'm assuming that there's many many aliens that take many different forms and have sort of various levels of advancement or non-advancement based on you know whatever like their environmental conditions have been like our solar system is you know was created at a particular time by particular forces and that doesn't mean that other solar systems and 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 galaxies haven't you know existed for longer and might have led to different evolutionary patterns including ones where societies don't self-destruct because they've actually gotten into sort of a communistic socialistic anarchistic uh way of being had to had to throw that in but to get to the 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 pessimistic part of the the caller's question before the fun part who is who is most likely an alien on the podcast. The pessimistic part is, I don't know how much this matters. 
I I th- I sort of take it as a given that there that there are other life forms, but I both think that they're too far away, and that at least if things remain on their current course, that we actually will destroy ourselves before we get to meet them, which is, makes me very sad. I would very much like to meet them, and I hope that that's not the case, and I, I'd like well, to work to that and have that not be the case. Better that we destroy ourselves before well, they. Yeah, yes. go, well, go ahead. You spell it. No, out that's there. that's you're so right because uh, if we if we meet the aliens before we abolish capitalism, we're just going to do to the aliens what Europeans did to the native populations. If, although, if they're if they're sufficiently or, technologically well, we advanced, we must hope that we, they don't have capitalism uh, in other galaxies. Wait, because, so what uh, is the left wing implication for aliens? Like, I can tell you that if they because, have a hierarchical society, do we organize them to have a more kind of to be skeptical? Do we organize them? That yes, feels we organize little... the aliens. If they, yeah, <laughs> there's one. It's so, like when they ask the Pope, whoever is the, the whoever is the most socialistic organizes the other hopefully the aliens are more socialistic than we are and they going in any sort of like weird leninist vanguard party direction no not a vanguard party they just demonstrate how much life they they live in the world of the dispossessed and they demonstrate how much better life would be we We learn from each other maybe they learn about they learn about you know cajun cuisine and jazz and we get all the other th- the only two th- good things that the that humanity has to offer and then we get all the good things that the aliens have to we offer we learn about zarsan mill mill 13 <laughs> p4 <laughs> can i tell you Pete, why i think it's worth thinking about aliens because um I think there is a temptation to assume that this is all completely irrelevant. We've got so many, um, in, you know, we, we face the risk of our own self-destruction. This is a, a totally, uh, this is just a question that has no bearing on anything, especially since they're so far away. I happen to disagree because a big part of, I think when you understand how amazing the universe is and how vast it is and how many incredible things could and probably could be and probably are out there and what the future might hold if we could get past our existing conflicts. They begin to seem so much more urgent and so much more stupid and you feel so much more of a commitment because you realize what is being squandered. Right when I think about what, the more I learn about how incredible, just and how much is unknown, I want to know, but I also feel like we can't know and we're not going to know until we live in a on a socialist planet that is capable of collective endeavor and that isn't that doesn't that spends as many of its resources on the search for life as it currently does on finding new ways to commit murder. Um, and so as I think about aliens, I think of an exci- a possibility of a really exciting human future. Like there is a future. There is a possible future. And it's amazing. And it's wonderful. It's the Star Trek socialist future. And it's this beautiful, beautiful vision. And I want to get to it. I yes. want to see it. I want to find out. Okay, I, I agree with all of that. And I think that that is beautiful. And that's the thing that compels me about thinking about aliens. And that's why I like Star Trek and, and Lyta and, and Brianna Renix and I just recorded a Next Generation episode that was very good. But let me let me give you the counter, the left counter case against the thing that you're saying, which is, it's not a that's all pie in the sky and won't ever happen. But it's a, 
what you're doing is sort of saying like, well, there is just sort of some mythical thing out there that exists that is much better than this. And at some point we'll get to it. And that's why it's worth thinking about. And what that ends up leading to potentially is to actually not working towards it because you think that it will just happen. And it may also, and it also may lead to the, in the, the sort of Right there, there were all these left critiques when NASA was established of why are you putting your money into the space exploration program and not into, f- and yeah, well, to 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 do the Gil Scott Heron, yeah, Whitey's on the moon while people are starving, you know, and and people are getting evicted, and I think that there is, I I think that aliens are are likely, you know, I'm I'm in entranced by the possibility, but I also think that there is a thing of of all the possible things to to fix and to to concentrate on why aliens I think when you say that i i mean i i don't believe it's inevitable i don't believe there are inevitable trajectories in fact i think probably the most likely trajectory is that humanity uh will destroy itself uh that seems that would be that that's the safe bet right now and what inspires me is and, and what keeps me going is the belief that a better world is possible. Not that it will get here, but that it is possible. There is a possible trajectory for humanity, a conceivable trajectory, that is much, much better, and that we have to work very hard towards. It's not mutually exclusive. I think the, the, the argument against the like space program is a waste of time thing is that there, it, it accepts a scarcity mindset that suggests it's either or. Um, in fact, you can do both at the same time. So it's not abolish the space program, it's have a space program, but also don't let people get evicted. And we've also gotten like tons of great innovations from from the space program over time. Well, okay, so to sort of back up something that Nathan's saying, the possibility I do think really matters. I don't know how to say this in a way that's that's convincing to anyone who doesn't already agree with me. But to go back to the Star Trek future, uh, one of my favorite things is the movie First Contact, which is set in the Next Generation universe, where they go back in time to the point where we discovered aliens. And this is something I could not stop thinking about during the Trump administration when I was playing with the, uh, um, you know, just sort of playing with the idea of becoming an accelerationist. Because what happens here is that there's a terribly devastating World War III. It's like a sort of a post-apocalyptic world. And things are going quite poorly. And they discover the capability of warp drive. And what happens is then the Vulcans come. So we're in this terrible, humanity's in this terrible state. But because we actually get the capacity to meet aliens, we do meet them. And it really coalesces all of humanity around a more solidarity mindset. So it's not just about the technology. It's about knowing that something else is out there and then being able to overcome, see each other as our own race on our planet as our responsibility to take care of each other. So didn't Reagan didn't Reagan yeah, make Ronald a speech? Reagan said this. Yeah, made, oh, really? made a speech basically <laughs> saying that. Yeah. He said if the aliens ever showed up, uh, all human conflict will disappear overnight. That's well, but that's what I think about. I think it's really true, and this is the plot of so many other movies, which is you know the two baseball teams are fighting until the other worst baseball team comes and then they unite. And I think it's really really matters. Well, and hopefully we wouldn't just kill the aliens, though. It would give us yeah, the solidarity yeah. without without the, without the murder. <laughs> this is assuming aliens can be killed. Right. Yes. I. I don't want to. I. I mean. I. I do. Of course. Want to do a full separate podcast episode on Pete's "What if Jupiter is an alien?" <laughs> suggestions. Or I. Or, I do think mushrooms are aliens. Um, they are. They're fucked but, up. But but Jupiter and the Milky Way. There's a. There is a. 
to go on a little Star Trek thing, there is a Star Trek Next Generation episode where there is a free-floating being that's just orbiting a planet. It looks like a sort of like giant fish-type creature. Um, but then the humans accidentally kill it by trying to give it a C-section to allow it to birth its its child. But then, but then the <laughs> the, uh, the 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 child the child planet-sized alien does emerge and and is alive. So was it the original, or it's a new? Oh, this was a next the next generation the, the, no, the no, series. No, that's not my question. I'm talking oh. about the orb because the other orb died and a new one was born, or is it just the same orb emerging? Oh no, new one was born, but not. It wasn't in an orb shape. It was. Uh, uh, it looked like a giant flounder. Uh huh. Um, mm. Which on that you know, note, <laughs> could be Jupiter. With, I think this question has been adequately explored. Um, <laughs> We've established many things. At least we've exhausted our listeners' attention. (laughs) I'm very happy um, uh, that comes to the end of our voicemail episode. I'm very happy the episode went the way it did because I felt like it was a classic current affairs episode. (laughs) And I have a bit of an announcement um, before uh, the end of this episode. And the reason I'm happy it was a classic current affairs episode is this is my last episode hosting the current affairs podcast. No, Pete. And <laughs> we'll all pretend that everyone is hearing live during the recording. <laughs> but for the listeners, you are hearing for the first time. And I'm not going to be too dramatic in the sign off because I will still be on episodes occasionally. And we are doing mini series like the infamous, now infamous, it's MMT Real series. Um, and those aren't stopping. I'm still uh, here in the extended universe. But this is my last night at the helm in Studio H3. And I just wanted to say a few things about this, which is that these last two and a half years have been very, uh, a total joy. And I love this ragtag crew on this tremendously strange pirate ship. I'm grateful to Dan Thorne, who edits our episodes from Pink Noise Studios. I'm grateful to Ashling McRae, who took over as producer for me. I'm grateful to Brianna Rennix and Nathan J. Robinson here for being down for my proposal to start a podcast for this magazine. Thank you, Nathan. I really appreciate it. And I'm grateful to all the birds listening, especially those who have been with us from the first footnotes and Red Rose and Lefty Shark Tank and Chomsky Drops. Thank you so much. Uh, This has been Allegra Silcox. Bye, all. Eli Massey. See ya. Oren Nimney. Practical Tactical. Nathan J. Robinson. (laughs) Well, good night, everyone. And can I just say that the feelings uh, are very much mutual. Everyone here loves Pete Davis. There wouldn't be, there very literally would not be a Kurt Affairs podcast without Pete Davis since it was his idea and he essentially built it from scratch. We've all been very, very lucky to have such a charismatic and delightful and, and brilliant and inventive uh, host who has uh, shaped what I think is a such a unique podcast that really captures the voice of the magazine in a way that I uh, never thought could happen. So he, I, you know, thank you, Pete, uh, for everything that you've uh, done for us, and we hope we really do hope we see you on a few episodes in the future because you are you are always welcome back in Studio H3. Thank you, Nathan. That means so much. And to all of you out there, good night. <laughs>